From the campus of Stanford University and on location, this is the Entrepreneur's Radio Show and Podcast featuring in-depth one-on-one interviews with purpose-driven entrepreneurs and high-performance game changers committed to extraordinary ideas, preeminence, and multi-generational success. Our radio show and podcast illuminates the struggles, breakthroughs, and exceptional outcomes these game changers bring to industries, organizations, and lives. Hosted by Tom Dioro, principal of Podfather Media. Thank you, Tatum. For our guest today, please welcome Ian Dainty, founder and CEO of Maximize Business Marketing, as well as a best-selling author. Ian has over 40 years experience in B2B marketing and sales and began his career at IBM. Ian's firm is recognized for helping B2B companies increase revenues 25 to 100% every year. That's, that's astounding. Uh, for more information, feel free to visit MaximizeBusinessMarketing.com. Again, that's MaximizeBusinessMarketing.com. Ian, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm honored to have you on today. Thank you, Tom. I'm honored to be here. As I uh, shared with you before we got on our show, Ian, you're one of my favorite uh, business people for sure. And I think a lot of your work, if not most of all of your work, ought to be uh, of planetary importance. I, th- I just made that up. I don't know if it's the actual phrase, but I really mean that. We start off with something personal so, our, so your audience can understand a little bit who uh, who Ian is. Is Can you share with us a, a mantra or a quote that you either live by or it means it means much to you? Well, there's two. Let me share two quickly, which are really good. They're both business related. My favorite one, I guess, is from Einstein, who said doing the same, or there was the definition of insanity, doing the same things over and over and expecting different results is insane. And so I've always liked that one, but I'm a frustrated golfer at the best of time. I guess one here, it's, it's by Grantland Rice. I've always liked something that relates to golf, and because I think golf mirrors life in a lot of ways and um it says 18 holes of match play if you understand golf that's golf uh, match play is one-on-one 18 holes of match play will teach you more about your opponent than 19 years of dealing with him across the desk i have a very good friend of mine he owned a couple of companies retired now but he owned a couple of companies and when he would want to hire an executive he'd take him out for a round of golf or her him or her that would be the final decision whether he would hire that person or not based on not how they played or not what their score was, but how honest they were when they played golf and, you know, did they keep the right score? It was his, you know, it's the old story about the guy in the woods saying he found his ball and it's that he hit it in the woods, your partner, and it's actually you're standing on the green right over his ball, you know. Um, so yeah, if you've ever played golf, you've, been involved in that before, but <laughs> anyway, so yeah. No, yeah, there they are. I don't want to take up a lot That's of time excellent. doing that, but yeah, no, it gives a great insight into, you know, what, what, what moves you moving along to that is what recently moved me uh, uh, as a business professional is your uh, B2B sales focus on COI or cost of inaction versus ROI, which of course is return of investment can you share with us, you know, what your inspiration for that piece is and what your experience with COI versus ROI is? Well, the inspiration is trying to get people to buy. B2B is very tough, as you know. 
you generally have to convince maybe up to four or five, sometimes even more people to get your proposal taken or for, for them to buy to you. And you've got to get to know almost all of those people personally a bit, you know, in a, in a big sale. It's a big sale. And usually B2B sales are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars and many times in the millions of dollars, unless you, unless you have a, you know, a commodity type business where you might sell kitchen cabinets to somebody or whatever. I'm see my kitchen over there. So that's what made me strike it. But, you know, something um, that you can buy without really any intervention of a salesperson or, you know, uh, to help you. So I've been dealing in high level sales all my life. Obviously, when I started with IBM, it was time way, way back in the 70s when we sold the IBM 370, 360, 370 computers where they had huge rooms that they put the computer in with air conditioning and raised floors and everything else. So used to, uh, you know, selling large systems a lot of time. Now, of course, it's very different. But still, selling is the same. Maybe the way we, we approach it and how we use it, you know, over the internet versus phone calls, I don't think we use them enough. But it's still basically the same. You've got people dealing with people. And people haven't changed really over eons, you know, thousands, hundreds, thousands of years. They do things a little differently, like we use the web now instead of putting stuff in the mail, you know, we'll use it this way. You and I talking over the web versus a telephone just per se. And uh, so, but dealing with people really hasn't changed that much, but you must understand in B2B that you've got to deal with a whole bunch of different people, some four to 10, and each of them has their own sort of way they want to do business. And they, you know, they have their own agenda, so to speak. And so you have to understand that. And a lot of people, a lot of salespeople give up. So the cost of inaction is doing that. The hardest thing you have to do in B2B sales is changing the status quo. That's your biggest competitor always, is changing the status quo. So what you have to do is convince people that they must change the status quo. And there's different ways of doing that. One of them through my gate, what I have called the game plan, G-A-I-M plan that I, I, I teach to people. But and that's an acronym, obviously, uh, for something. But um, yeah, so. I like B2B, you can make an awful lot of money in it if you're good at it. Very few salesmen that I know that are salespeople, sorry, that are good at it, make less than 100 grand a year. And most of them are making you know, hundreds of thousands, some of them making, I've met a couple lately because their money's gone up recently, well over a million dollars a year. Well, you're not going to make that as a uh, car salesman or, you know, um, somebody selling a to the general public consumer. So yeah, it's fun and difficult, Mm. but fun. There's such a significant focus in business on ROI versus COI, which is cost of inaction. Right. If you can share with your audience why the cost of inaction is is more impacting and more relevant to the actual transaction. Well, you know, it's it's interesting. No matter what you buy, especially a big product like a, uh, you know, if you buy a house or a car, and even in um, business, if you're buying something that costs a lot of money, it's uh, really true that. Um, People buy for emotional reasons and justify it with logical reasons. 
And so you've got to get to the emotional side of their biz of their mindset in order to really sell anything in in uh, business. As I'll just give you a consumer example, buying a car. You know, if somebody say, "Oh boy, I'm buying it for the safety features and all of that," but if they don't like the looks of it, which is an emotional part of it, they're not going to buy it, even if it's the most safe, even if it's the safest car in the world. So. You know, people, uh, why do people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a Rolls Royce, if you have that, when BMW now owns Rolls Royce and you can buy one for about a tenth? And I've had a BMW and I love them. They're very good cars. It's a, it's an emotional thing. You know, why do people buy a convertible versus a nice sedan, even though they have a family? And the, the same holds true with selling something that's large, where it's going to affect somebody's job. You know, if you buy a commodity and um, it doesn't work out, you go and buy some more, you know, so that's okay. But if you buy if you buy a big system, whether it be having a consultant come in and help you or whether it's a big computer system, you know, a software system, it can affect not only your life, but a lot of other people's lives in your organization. And of course, that's why it take you have to convince more than one person in that. Having said that, in most decision makers, there in, in most decisions, there is a main decision maker who can override everybody else if he or she wants to. Now that doesn't usually happen because the decision maker usually isn't the person who will use the product so much. So you want to get the users involved in the product, and then of course you got to get um, you know some of the gatekeepers involved in it. The, uh, you know any product that that costs a lot of money, you've got to get the, the finance people involved in it. And if it's a computer system, even though they might not use the system, they have to get it up and running. So you have to get the computer people involved in it in your organization. You know, if it's a sales type of program, you'll have to get the sales and marketing people involved. They're going to use it, but they're not going to run it all the time. You know, like a CRM system, as an example. If you want to sell a CRM system, you just don't get the sales people and marketing people involved. You got to get the CIO, the chief information officer involved, the CFO, because he or she has to approve that. And probably the president, too, because that's how they grow their businesses through sales. You know, and they want to make sure they got the right system. So th that could entail quite a group. And in fact, sometimes it could entail the board of directors. As an example, in, in recession times like these, like we're going through right now with this pandemic, all anything that's bought. You can bet all the everybody in the whole company is looking at spending money or not spending money right now. So if they're going to buy something that's $100,000 or more, they probably are going to go to the board of directors and certainly the, the chief financial officer and the chief, the CEO and, and or president are going to get involved in it, even though they might not use it on a daily basis like others will. So it's very important that you understand that there are a number of buyers and that's why you want to get to them about their cost of inaction. You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Radio Show and Podcast on KZSU, Stanford 90.1 FM. We're talking today with Ian Dainty, founder and CEO of Maximize Business Marketing, as well as best-selling author. For more information, you can visit MaximizeBusinessMarketing.com. Carry on, please, Ian, about the cost of inaction versus return of investment. Yeah. So the cost of inaction is really 
what are the actions? Why won't people buy for buy from you more than the more than the ROI? And the cost of inaction, again, as I mentioned earlier, is an emotional thing that you want to tap into. Where the ROI is a dollar figure, a logical thing that that you that they, you tap into. Now, you still have to talk about ROI and what they're going to get out of it, but the cost of inaction is something sure. that most people don't deal with. Now, I'll give you an example as from my game plan. Game plan is an acronym standing for goals, afflictions, impact, and meaning. One of my clients used the game plan. He he lost the business to a client. I think it's probably better to do, you know, tell you a bit of a, a story on this than anything. He had lost the business. And he took my program. I have a program called sure. The Seven Factors of B2B Sales and Marketing Success. So a little plug on that. And the game plan is part of it, but he used it and a couple other things in my program. And the, and, and the game plan, as I say, stands for goals, afflictions, impact, and meaning. Now, most, most salespeople will go up to a client and say, what issues do you have? But people don't have issues unless they have goals, business people. I mean, if you don't have a goal, you don't care what happens, I guess. But I think everybody has goals. And most people would rather talk about their goals and their issues. So I always like to say, lead with the game plan, which is the goals, and say, what is it you're trying to achieve this year? You don't have to say, or you could say even what your goals are. But, you know, they could say, what are you trying to achieve this year? And you write that down. And what else do you want to achieve? That kind of thing. And so, and then you ask them, well, what kind of issues are you running into, which is the afflictions part of it, roadblocks or problems are you running into while you're trying to achieve those goals? And they'll give you those usually too, and you write them down. And the impact one to me is the really biggest one, which really gets into the emotional part of it. And it says two things. There's two things you ask in impact. You say, how important is it for you and your business to reach that goal this year? And then that really gives a, a real opening for the person you're talking to to talk. And then the other question is, what happens to you and your business if you don't reach that goal this year? What's the impact of that, the eye of the game plan? Those two questions are the emotional part of making people talk to you and, un, and as well as their goals, because I say people like talk about goals. But once they start thinking about that, then they re realize that, hmm, you're right. Do I really need to do this? Or, yeah, I really got to do this. Or my business goes away. Or, you know, I, I don't really need to do it, but I could cut it back a little bit because I don't have the money, something like that. And then the, um, the game plan is the methodology you're going to use to talk to them about how you can help them implement it. But once you know the uh, the goals, afflictions, and the impact, it's a lot easier then to show them the value you bring and how it's going to impact them and their goals and help them resolve issues. I mentioned I had a client who took my program in that, and he went back to this other client and used the game plan and some other ideas that, that he had learned in my program. And he turned that client around in about 15, 20 minutes. And it ended up being four times his annual quota, that one particular sale. I'm not saying his annual quota for that client. I'm talking about his overall annual quota. 
So it can be a pretty powerful thing when you tap into the emotions of people and, and let them get, you know, talk to you about the impact this can have on their business, irrespective of where they are. I mean, if it's the, if you're, you know, if it's just a person, I don't want to say just, but if it's a person who's a programmer, as an example, what's the impact if they don't do this? Well, I might lose my job or maybe I'll get a promotion if I do it well. So that taps into their emotion of what you're selling and helps them see it from your standpoint in some respect or, you know, look at it at a, in a different light than almost every other salesperson will ask them. Most people will say, what are your, you know, they'll ask them what their issues are. And as soon as they li list off three or four, oh, we do this and we do that and we do this and we, we do that and we can overcome it. It doesn't differentiate you from anybody else. But when you ask the question of the emotional part, the impact this will have on them and their company and their, or their part of the company, particularly them, and get them talking about themselves and what they do and who they are and all of that stuff, it really can have a big impact on whether you close the sale or not. Excellent. Absolutely. No, I, I, I really value this. This is the Entrepreneur's Radio Show and Podcast on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. The Second Harvest. Second Harvest work is about all of us joining together to make sure that we have access to the most basic need, food. Founded in uh, 1974, Second Harvest is one of the largest food banks in the nation who provides food to more than a quarter million people in uh, Santa Clara and San Mateo counties every month. More than half the people served are children and seniors. For more information, you can go to Second Harvest website at shfb.org. Again, that's shfb.org. We're talking today with Ian Dainty, founder and CEO of Maximize Business Marketing, as well as best-selling author. For more information, you can visit MaximizeBusinessMarketing.com. Again, that's MaximizeBusinessMarketing.com. Ian, why, uh, I mean, we talked earlier in the show, but uh, share with us why Second Harvest means much to you. Well, a friend of mine worked there for years in Toronto, uh, Ontario region where I live in Canada. Every year, she would have us go out to a couple of the major grocery stores in the city at Christmas time. I must admit, I'm not totally involved in but it's one of the charities I have worked for. And, you know, Christmas is a, can be a very mm -hmm. hard time for a lot of people, especially people who are homeless and don't have a family to go to or don't get a meal at that time. So we go to the, it's called Loblaws. It's the biggest probably chain of grocery stores in Canada. And we'll go there a couple of days, a couple of Sundays before Christmas in relatively nice neighborhoods. And there's a big freezer full of turkeys. And we asked people, would you buy a turkey for somebody who could use it over Christmas time? And I'd say no, well over 90% of them do. And, uh, you know, right, right now turkeys cost 25 to $40, I guess, depending on how much they weigh. And then we actually, they actually pick out the turkey, interestingly, at that time. The, the uh, person who's going to buy it picks out the turkey gives it back to us and we put it in a freezer truck until we can deliver it to set to the second harvest people who then actually deliver it to the homes or the shelters where these people live. 
No, it's just really nice to help people. And uh, it's nice that people are so giving at that time, you know. So it's something we do. It's a, it's a long day. It's usually from nine in the morning till four in the afternoon. As you get older, standing for that long, asking people to do something is, uh, can be a bit of a chore. But in the end, you know, it's really worth it. So that's the one that I've supported uh, for the last few years. And they do a great job. And I, they do that all year long. They don't Excellent. just do it at Christmas. Terrific. My favorite article of yours of all times, and you have some great ones, all of them are great, but this is really one of my favorite, is a percentage of revenue that a company invests in their sales and marketing. Can you share with us a bit of that article, make it you know, as succinct as you can as to why that's so important and then why companies are don't do that and why they would grow immensely if they did? I guess I guess I learned that from IBM. We had two companies. I mentioned three companies, and they're all technology because that's what I've been involved in all my life. By the way, I sell technology. I have no idea how to use it half the time, but uh, and they keep changing it on me. But when I joined IBM in the mid seventies, they they would put us through. I, by the way, I have a phys ed degree. Taught school for a couple of years before I joined IBM. So going to IBM with a phys ed degree didn't give me a lot of background. And we had people in there. One guy was a uh, chemist. Another guy had an, uh, they were just very different. A few had MBAs, but they would put us through a nine-month program back then before you even went into a branch or saw a customer or anything. And then you spent eight or nine months in the branch learning that too. So it was about 18 months that we took before we even saw a client. And, And we went into a classroom for nine months where they taught us three things. Sales and marketing, something about IBM, and something about business. And at least 70% of that time was spent on sales and marketing. IBM never had the greatest technology. They had technology that worked for the majority of the people, which is what the majority of the people wanted. Most people don't want to be, they don't want the latest technology. They don't want to be pioneers because, as you know, the old story of pioneers, what it is. And so with the arrows in your back. But um, the arrows, so they yes. realized that early. Thomas Watson, the founder of, tech, of uh, IBM, most people don't know what IBM stands for, by the way. It's International Business Machines because he worked for a company called NCR, National Cash Register, before he joined, before he started IBM. So he understood machines. And back in the you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, they were big machines, as I mentioned earlier. He realized that sales and marketing were the most important thing in selling. Now, you had to have a product that worked. You can't have a defective product or anything. And you had to have a product that met the needs of most of your of your potential clients. And that's what he did. And, of course, they had huge um, R&D research and development areas and everything, IBM, too. So they were always changing the product and upgrading it, but making sure it was easier to use and easy to use. And so that's what made me think, you know, sales and marketing are the most important thing. And if you look at Microsoft and IBM and Apple, you'll find that they spend disproportionately amount on sales and marketing than they do on R&D. Usually they'll spend 15 to 20% on sales and marketing and maybe 8 to 10% on R&D, research and development. Realizing that you've got to, you can have the, you know, see old story, you can have the best mousetrap in the world, but you better have a bunch of people beating a path to your door. Or you're not going to sell anything. 
and sales and marketing would make people beat a path to their door. And too many, and, and as you know, there's what what's the failure rate in the first year of most companies, 95% or something. And uh, a lot of that's got to do with financing and other things too, other than sales and marketing. Correct. But, and a lot of people now will tell you, if you want to build a product, don't start building it now. Get people to invest in it first and tell, tell you exactly what they want, which is sales and marketing, and then build the product and give them money and say, you know, if a product's going to cost, for, let's say, $1,000, say, give me $100 now, help me build the product, and I'll give it to you when it's done. Whereas I'm going to charge, my, you know, when it's done, I'm going to charge people $1,000 or just an example mm -hmm. of, you know, pricing. Could be you're going to charge it 10000 and I'm going to give it to people, sell it for 100000 but whatever. So a lot of more people are doing that now. What percentage, in do you uh, believe would put a company ahead provide of uh, revenue if they invested into selling, sales and marketing? What percentage would really put a company who has, just let's just expect that they have a very good product or a very good service. What percentage of revenue would put them over most competitors, 25, 30%, maybe even 40% of revenue that goes directly into well, certainly 40 uh, would. sales, marketing, promotion. Did you say 40? 40 would, oh my, 40 would, you would, you would just, uh, in my opinion, you would devastate a competition. Yeah, but I think 25 or 30% would do it too. Now, as I mentioned, I. Why wouldn't did someone go for 40%? I, here's my. Because they keep thinking they got to build a better mousetrap, Tom. Ah, but I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do this. You're a rugby guy. I I played rugby in college as well. Is it was like when I played, yeah, yeah. Um, which was like 20 years ago. Weightlifting was not expected of us. Well, I really enjoyed weightlifting, and it made such a significant difference in uh, how you played, how you minimized injury. But the rest of the people, because it, around the world, and particularly here in the states. It was like, ah, that's something you did on your own time, but it really had no correlation as to how strong, how fast, how, how less injurious you would be. But I knew it, and, I, and so I was, I was one of the few guys that did, and I, I benefited from it. And uh, now it's mandatory in most rugby uh, teams, whether collegiate club or uh, a professional. The same goes for if you go for 40%. I think it has to do with two things. And tell me if I'm wrong. I think it has to do with, one, you have to be aware of it. And two, you have to have the courage to go ahead and execute on it. It, it. To me, it has more to do with courage than wisdom. But maybe you are wise if you do it. I don't know. What's your thought on it? Well, yeah, I think wisdom is all a big part of it, really. I mean, certainly courage and wisdom are two great traits of any entrepreneur, as you know. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't. I don't know if I, I think I'd put them both uh, in equal weight, Tom, because it does take guts to go ahead. When I say 40%, I mean, if you're dominate a market, you don't, probably don't have to spend 40%. But people who dominate market, like at McDonald's, as an example, in the hamburger market, I mean, you can't turn on the TV at night or drive around anywhere without seeing a McDonald's billboard or McDonald's ad somewhere, you know. And I don't know what they spend because um, they don't post it. But I'm sure it's quite, you know, it is quite a bit. Yeah, they're in the real estate business. Although they say hamburgers, uh, if you have see the movie The Founder. Yeah, crock. 40% is really, when you're certainly when you're starting, you got to spend an awful lot more than people think they do. As I said, you know, as I just said, you know, just because you built a better mousetrap doesn't mean you're going to get people stampeding towards your the product at all. 
And a lot of times great products have fallen by the wayside. I forget the names of 90% of them, but like Wang was a big one back in the day and D- Digital Equipment Corporation. Mm-hmm. They're all gone now, but I- IBM's still there, you know. Xerox was another company that was very good in training people too. And they're still around, but in a very different way. IBM uh, do- does things a lot differently now too. They're more in the professional services and consulting business then. But they still, you know, they have a cloud computing system. So by the way, while I think of it, Lou Gerstner, who came in and really saved IBM in the mid-90s, has written a book. I don't have the name of it in front of me. I think it's something like you can tame elephants, talking about the elephant in the room, you know. And it's something like that. The word elephant is in it. But it's a great leadership book for anybody who really wants to lead an organization and particularly somebody wants to turn one around. But even getting started, it's a great leadership book. Before he came in, they wanted to break up IBM. And he said, no, we're going to keep it as it is. And because of that, it's still as strong as it ever was. You know, there are a lot more people in the uh, in the game now. So Microsoft and Apple and some other many other smaller companies, but they still have a big dominance in their marketplace, IBM. Nobody trains like they did back then. And it's sad, really, because a lot of B2B salespeople and marketers really don't know what they're doing. They may spend 40%, but they're not spending it the right way. They're not dealing with people's emotions or dealing with logic too often. And I fall into that trap myself. But spending 40%, if you can do that, you'll down, dominate an industry. I, you know, There's no doubt about it. But you still got to do it the right way. You still have to understand it and you know, do the right way. Ian, it's been a real honor and pleasure having you on our show today. You absolutely did, and uh, but I think you and I have more to talk about. I, it, we have a half, half an hour show, and we need more time, but it's been an honor and pleasure having you on the show today. I hope you consider coming back soon. Thank you, Tom. Yes, I really enjoyed it. I hope I didn't talk too much. I have a tendency to do that sometimes. Thank you. thank you and uh, always great you've been listening to the entrepreneurs radio show and podcast our guest today has been ian dainty founder and ceo of maximize business marketing as well as best-selling author ian has over 40 years experience in b2b marketing and sales and began his career at ibm his firm is recognized for helping b2b companies increase revenues 25 to 100% every year. For more information, you can visit MaximizeBusinessMarketing.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another purpose-driven entrepreneur or high-performing game changer committed to ideas, positive outcomes, and a better world. I'm Tom Dior. The Entrepreneur's radio show and podcast is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and on location. The Chief Audio Engineer is Eris Chikopoulos. Chief Engineer is Mark Lawrence. And we are all assisted by Peter Caroline and Omar L. Sabrao. And the executive producer and host of The Entrepreneur's Show is Tom Dior. If you wish to contact us, our email is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. 